was many years ago when my father gave me what he said was a genuine Rolex watch. I'm wearing it this morning. He bought it in Thailand. <laughs> he was stationed there during the Vietnam War at a Takli Air Force Base, uh, working on, it was a radar tech for some of the fighters there. And uh, on days when they had leave, his friends would all you know, bike into Chiang Mai or wherever to go spend their money on, on partying and other American style things. Where my dad would just bike off into the woods somewhere. And so he was able to save his money through his time in the military. And I, I know that uh, some of you here were actually stationed with him there at Takli. And I, I, I don't, I'm not implying that you went off partying in Chiang Mai. Of course not. You're probably biking somewhere also. At the end of my dad's time there, he'd taken the money that he had saved and bought it, bought this Rolex that he then kept with him and then eventually gave to me. I had a roommate in college who also had a Rolex watch, uh, an alleged Rolex watch. He too bought it in Asia out of the back of a jeepney in the streets of Manila. And so we would give ourselves a hard time, you know, is your Rolex real? No, is yours real? You know, back and forth, uh, accusing each other of having a fake Rolex. And since Austin was my roommate and he preached here a couple weeks ago and he made fun of my hair and my earrings and whatnot, I'm gonna make fun of his watch. <laughs> we decided to settle the dispute one time by going to a jeweler to get our watches cleaned and tuned. That's something you're supposed to do every few years, we heard, and so we go to the jeweler and put our watches across the table to him and ask him to clean him and do what they do with them and ask how much it would cost. And jeweler looks at Austin's watch and says, mm, I'll do this for 50 bucks. And he picks up my watch, again, this one right here, and he holds it and looks at it and says, oh, it's not often we get to work on a real one of these. We'll do this one for free. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a reality that James expresses here in these two verses. Not everyone who says they have a confession of faith in Christ has the real thing. There is such a thing as a fake confession. It's worse than wearing a fake Rolex. It speaks to your eternal destiny, in fact. Not everyone who is religious is actually in a relationship with the Savior. Or to quote Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. Or if we really want to mix our metaphors here, not everyone with a Jesus fish on their watch has Jesus in their hearts. <laughs> Some people are, I suppose, not simply walking around with fake Rolexes, but with fake religion. They have a religion that is bogus. It's more of a passion for politics than a hunger for humility. It's more about external symbols than internal sanctification. It is, to be blunt, worthless. There's a religion here that is self-deceived. He brings it up in verse 22. Those who are hearers of the word only but not doers, they are deceiving themselves. It's self-deception. And then in verse 25, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't uh, have these marks in his life, their religion is in fact worthless, is James's words. It's as if your religion is put up on a scale 
by God and he measures it and he sees through the hypocrisy and the fakery of it and he declares that all of the pomp and circumstance, all of the religious activities mean absolutely nothing to him. And these few verses here are given to you as a couple, three, well, three indicators, three pretty straightforward ways to measure the worth of your religion. And so I wanna do that this morning as an outline. I wanna give you three marks of a worthwhile religion. Three marks of a worthwhile religion. I want you this morning to place your religion on the scales and for you to weigh it and to see in God's estimation, does your religion have any value to it? There's a contemporary mantra that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, right? I don't have a religion, I have a relationship, bro. I'm sure you've seen the bumper stickers. There's a, a motivation that's behind that kind of statement that is good, it may even be well-intentioned, but it certainly doesn't match how the Bible presents religion. In fact, the word religion that is used twice here, in verse 26 and then again in verse 27, it is a, a word that can be neutral. It doesn't mean negative or positive, it just simply means the external performance of religious rites. Craig Bloomberg from Denver Seminary defines it this way. This word means, quote, the outward manifestation of one's religious system. And basically everybody has a religious system. <laughs> Everybody's worshiping something. I mean, you all do, you're here on Sunday. And so that in and of itself is an expression of what the Bible would call religion. Now, sometimes this word is used negatively in terms of religion that is just focused on the externals, like the religion of the Pharisees or the religion that's asceticism and the worship of angels, Paul says. But other times, this word can be used positively, such as here, religion in verse 27 that is pure and undefiled. And so not everybody who has a religion has the bad one. Just because hypocrites are drawn towards religion doesn't mean that authentic worshipers don't also have religion. Does that make sense? Just because there's counterfeit currency in the world doesn't mean that what you have in your wallet is fake. Rather, James is giving you these two verses for you to see, for you to measure for yourself. Ask yourself where your religion is like. And by the way, this, these three little indicators here could not have a more severe introduction if James tried. I mean, he rolls into this thing with there's people who look at themselves in the mirror and go away and forget what they look like. Steve read earlier from Psalm 19, but that's that idea that the law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It regenerates, it gives life to the dead. That's what the word of God does. But some people look at the word of God like a mirror and then go away forgetting what they look like. Or even worse, some people look at the word of God like a mirror and they look at it and stare at it and think that they're A-okay. They're self-deceived. And so these three indicators, these three marks of pure and undefiled religion or of worthwhile religion are critical for you to understand. So let me just rattle them off for you. First, control your speech. Second, love the needy. And third, guard your holiness. Control your speech, love the needy, and guard your holiness. Let me tell you before we look at these one at a time, this is not an exhaustive catalog of everything that matters to God. <laughs> James's goal in these two verses is not to define Christianity from start to finish. And there are those, I mentioned this because there are those that take these verses, especially James 127 part A, not the second part, just the first part. They like to take the first part and say the hallmark of Christianity is social action or love for the poor, the needy, or the immigrant. That defines Christianity right there. And if you're not doing that, you're not a real Christian. And that kind of statement is only half right. 
And that's not the some catch-all description of Christianity. That's one of three things James gives at the end of chapter one. The, even those three things are not meant to be exhaustive. If you wanna try to take this verse and make it say the most important thing about being a Christian is to love the poor, you're making this verse do more than it wants to do. Nevertheless, these three imperatives are important for you to weigh the worthwhile nature of your own religion. First of all, control your speech. Control your speech. He gets to this in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, this idea is as a person claims to be religious, he thinks he's a follower of Christ, he would allege that. But you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart and your religion is worthless. Now, just another quick note here before we get into what this means to bridle the tongue. It kind of rubs us the wrong way to say that some people can confess faith in Christ and be wrong about it. It's not very, I guess, popular, especially in modern evangelicalism, loves to put kind of lowest common bar Christianity and say, if you make a profession of faith, that means that you're saved and don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. But that kind of you know, low shelf Christianity does not match what is in the Bible. Again, James is presenting this to you. This test only makes sense if you understand there are people who would say they are believers, but they are not. So how do you know? Just three quick ways. The first, do you control your speech? Do you bridle your tongue? That word bridle, it's uh, for restraining. It's what you would do to an animal. Now, I have a lot I could say about that. I'm gonna save that for James chapter three because James, when we get to chapter three, returns to that illustration there. And so I wanna, I wanna save that for then. We'll get to James chapter three, I don't know, by Christmas or something. <laughs> it seems that control your speech is out of nowhere here though, doesn't it? I mean, James chapter one is a very profound chapter. There's no more weighty part of scripture than what you see in James one. I mean, James one is giving you a worldview to cope with why bad things happen. James one is the chapter you go to and you wonder how come you know, my child died? How come my brother has cancer? I mean, there's serious issues that James one is given to you to help you think rightly through. I mean, the goal of James one is for you to get your mind around the fact that God is sovereign and there are bad things happening in this world that he is directing for his own good purposes. I mean, this is the deep end of the pool here. So it seems kind of strange after all of that for them to be like, James to be like, oh yeah, and watch what you say too. <laughs> but understand what's behind all this is this idea that true religion is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. In the Old Testament, two groups of people could both bring the same exact sacrifices to the temple. And one group's sacrifice would be pleasing and one group's sacrifice would not be pleasing. And they looked identical on the outside. I mean, the only difference is that one group had hearts that was right with the Lord, whereas the other group didn't. On the outside, you couldn't tell. You can't tell just by looking at the outside because you can't see the heart. I mean, Christian ministry would be so much easier if you could actually see people's hearts. It would be, what a time saver that would be. But you can't, except if you stand up on your tippy toes and you look just right and you get the right angle and you look into their mouth, you can see their hearts. <laughs> Not literally, of course, but out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. So that's the best indicator right there of what's actually going on in a person's heart. 
This is why you find this in James 1. The whole point of James 1 is for you to understand, is your heart right with the Lord? Is, do you understand? Do you receive the trials with joy? Do you put the word of God into practice in your life? Is your heart in sync with the Lord? And what a great way to tell by looking at your speech. Now, to understand the full significance of connecting speech to the heart, you almost need a little gospel primer here. People are born into the world separated from God because they love sin. Your hearts come broken. You know, out of the box, you're broken. <laughs> Despite having a conscience that convicts you of sin, despite having laws in the world that seek to restrain sin, your heart still runs away with its sin. That's true with everybody in the world. But God doesn't just let everybody go their own way and just be lost forever. Because your own sin makes you guilty before God. God is a, a fair judge who will judge you for your sin. Your good works can't undo your sin. God must punish every wrong because he's holy. So the time that you sin des- makes you deserving of God's wrath. But God doesn't, as I said, just let you get away with your sin forever and then lose you into hell. He's not content with the whole world doing that. Instead, he sends his son to the world. His son who takes on a human nature, is born in a human body, leads a human life as a human existence that's sinless and at the end of his son's perfect life the father gives the son our sin and so the son is crucified executed and receives the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin it's poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ three days later after having atoned for our sin he rises from the grave to offer new eternal life to all those who would believe his message. But the same problem remains. Because people have sinful hearts, they don't believe his message. Even those who saw the resurrection turned their backs on him. And again, God is not content to let the whole world go their own way. But he sends this time his spirit to the world. And his spirit will draw people to faith in his son. His spirit will cause them to be born again, to have new life, which is seen through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the Father sends the Son to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the dead. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit into the world to bring us to faith in Christ. That's called being born again, when the Spirit gives you new life and opens up your eyes and gives you a faith to believe the gospel. And the Holy Spirit does that by giving you a new heart. That's the language of the Bible. Your heart becomes circumcised. Your heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in. It's all internal. This is inward surgery which you cannot see on the outside. He's the Holy Spirit. He's dealing with you spiritually. So how can you tell if your confession of faith is genuine? Well, do you have genuine faith? Do you have a new heart? And here's why the speech test is so important, because it is such a clear view of the heart. Honestly, it's not a great test in terms of the, you will get false positives. In other words, there are even pagan religions that can teach people to clean up their speech, right? Just because you can restrain your tongue doesn't mean you have a new heart. It's possible to restrain your tongue for works righteousness reasons or false religion reasons. I mean, have you ever met a cussing Mormon? You get the point, right? (laughs) Just because you restrain your tongue doesn't mean that you're an authentic believer. But James is approaching it from the other perspective. He's saying if you're walking around talking about how you're a Christian, but you gossip like a teenager, there's something wrong there. All due respect to teenagers. (laughs) 
He says, if that's you, your religion is worthless. I mean, even false religions can tell people to rein in their speech. So if you say you have the true religion, just look at the kind of things that you're saying. Your tongue run around the block before you get out the door. That's a problem. In fact, he says it's worthless. And that word worthless, it means it's, it's the opposite of wise. It could even be translated foolish. In other words, James is kind of poking fun at it. He says, if you think that, that you have an authentic religion, but you can't control your speech, I mean, it's kind of funny in a way that you would believe something like that. In our social media age, it is fun and totally acceptable to tear other people down, isn't it? Get a load of this guy. How stupid must this, must this person be? Ha, ha, ha. I had the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my whole life right here. <laughs> if James were alive today, he might have said it this way. If anyone thinks he is religious, but he cannot control his Twitter, <laughs> his religion is worthless. If you have a religion of uncontrolled speech, you have a pretty ser- silly religion. It's more like idolatry than faith. Well, first, control your speech. If you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. Second, love the needy, love the needy. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to get the full weight of this, you almost need to go through it word at a time. It begins with pure and undefiled. That's Jewish words from the Old Testament. They're, they're ceremonial words. In the Old Testament, those words are paired. If, some, if an item touches something that defiles it, that item is now defiled. If that item is purified, that item is now pure. So the word pure speaks to items used in religious rituals, like the, the tongs for a sacrifice or something like that. If it comes in contact with something unclean, it is defiled. There's a purification rite, and that thing becomes pure. The word undefiled speaks to a person. If pure speaks to a thing, undefiled speaks to a person. If a person touches a dead body or, or blood or something, that person is now unclean, he's defiled. If he goes through the mikvah washing and the ritual washings, he now becomes undefiled. Very Old Testament concepts. James uses them here to demonstrate to you that God's strategic focus on pure versus impure, defiled versus undefiled, in other words, holy versus common, that distinction still comes into the New Testament. That distinction is not done away with. Only instead of being external, it's now internal. The Jews in the Old Testament are focused on the external elements of touching and tasting and what kind of sandals you could wear on Saturday and how heavy the things are you could lift on the Sabbath and when you could uh, pluck grain and roll it in your hands. I mean, all those external things. Here, James steals their words from them, pure and undefiled. He steals their words and he uses them not to talk about the externals that so transfixed the Pharisees, but to talk about an ethical dilemma, an ethical mandate, an ethical dimension on the inside. It is possible to have a pure and undefiled religion without the ritual mikvahs and washings and ceremonies of the old covenant. It's pure and undefiled. Notice this phrase, before God the Father. That should jump out to you, not a normal way of saying it. In fact, in Greek, it's theos kai petros, God and Father. James, writing to a Jewish audience that's now converted to faith in Christ, he's stressing the Trinitarian nature of God here. Of course, your religion is pure and undefiled if you're in Christ. That's obvious, because Christ is pure and undefiled. 
But more than that, James is saying, Jesus is not gonna be the sole measurer of your faith and of your religion. It's pre- he's presenting you before the Father. The Father, the one who sent Jesus. The Father, the one who with Jesus sent the Spirit. He is the judge of your religion. Even though you're in Christ, you'll be presented before the Father. Pure and undefiled religion before, and by the way, that phrase, God the Father, it's used a couple places in the Old Testament, usually where God is calling somebody, his son, to rescue him. God tells uh, Jacob that you will be my son, and I am God the Father. He tells the nation Israel that he calls them his son, and he will deliver them. Here, in the context of dealing with orphans, it's noteworthy, isn't it? In ministry to orphans, you should be reminded that they have a father. Another way of saying it, that in Christ, there are no orphans. We all have the same father when we're in Christ. The next word in the Greek is the word visit there. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father, to visit. Now, English visit means like, hey, you popped in and said hi. You know, I came over for a visit, had a lemonade, fun. Or maybe a couple weeks, I went to go visit my aunt, I'm back now. But this word has a very, again, specific use in the Old Testament. It's where you visit somebody to deliver them from what afflicts them. The word at the end of verse 20, uh, the middle of verse 26 is to visit them in their affliction. In the Old Testament, those are paired. Somebody's in affliction or oppression. Somebody else visits them to deliver them from that. God sends Moses to Israel when they're in captivity in Egypt. He sends them to the Israelites to visit them to deliver them. When Israel is being held captive by the Babylonians, God will visit them through the prophets who will deliver them. They're connected. And so the point here is that pure and undefiled religion for God the Father is that you go to the widows, you go to the orphans, you go to the needy, and you deliver them. You rescue them. You show them love and compassion. This word is used in Acts 7, verse 23, to speak how Moses rescued, delivered the Israelites from their captivity. In Acts 6, verse 3, it's the word that's used to describe how they'll be caring for the widows by feeding them food in the church. The idea behind this word is that there's a constant care for the needy in the genuinely converted heart. It's a demand to protect and provide for widows and orphans. This kind of compassion God wants, it's not handing $5 out to a homeless person through the window. That's not visiting them in their affliction. It's not even seen in mere service projects to the needy. He's talking about a heart attitude that's disposed to care spiritually for those who are hurting. The Yale Anchor Bible Commentary says it this way, quote, James here makes it a covenantal obligation of humans to rescue each other from a heart of love. It's a covenantal obligation. When you are in the new covenant in Christ, you have this obligation to mankind to rescue each other. And who are you supposed to rescue? Specifically here, widows and orphans. They're the classic recipients of God's help and assistance. They're paired together in the Old Testament. The fatherless and the the widows. They're the endemically impoverished. There's a gender-specific uh, nature to this phrase here. It's not politically correct to point out today, but in the Bible, it's always the widows, not the widowers, because a widower should go work, is the idea. The, the God's pattern for the family is for the husband to be working and providing and the wife to be caring for the family. And when the husband dies, what now is the wife supposed to do? Well, I mean, what? 
Does she go work and leave her kids alone? Or does she bring her kids to work with her? This is why in every culture in the world, these people represent the endemically impoverished. I mean, they're they're the, the least of these. What can you do for them? James is probably the oldest, if not the second oldest book in the New Testament, James and Matthew being the first two books. So written before Acts, before 1 Timothy, but Acts and 1 Timothy flesh this out a little bit. Acts, you see, you care for widows without ethnic distinctions. It doesn't matter what ethnicity they're from, you care for them. 1 Timothy 5 says you don't need to care for younger widows because they should remarry, but older widows, if they are members of the church and uh, in good standing and they have a reputation for good deeds, they should receive the benevolence of the church because what else are they supposed to do? This is not a New Testament thing. It's not like God discovered his care for the widows and orphans in the New Testament. All over the Old Testament, they're called the fatherless and the widow, and they're always a pair, a pair whom mankind continually exploits, but God continually protects. False religions exploit widows by stealing their money from them. Every culture in the world exploits orphans for their own governmental interests or to other kinds of exploitation that are too horrible to speak about. That's the way the world works. It's not the way the church works. You won't have time to write all these verses down, but I know that some people will be listening to this online. I want to just rattle off a list of verses that command those who love the Lord to care for widows and orphans. Exodus 22, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 26, Amos 2, Amos 3, Hosea 12, Micah 3, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 7, Malachi 3, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 22, Proverbs 19, Proverbs 21, Proverbs 31. All of them build really this principle, Psalm 68 verse five says God, Yahweh is the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows. We care for widows and orphans because God does. There's another obvious connection that would be here in the Jewish mind. In the Old Testament, this group, fatherless and widows, are always paired with a third category. Not always, but frequently paired with a third category. You probably know what that category is, the alien, or the stranger, or the sojourner. The ESV translates it resident alien. I think if my kids listening, if I talk about God's heart for the alien, I don't know what they would think. (laughs) That's why the ESV goes to the resident alien or King James stranger. Some translations use the word sojourner, but the word sojourner is a very interesting word too. It's not one you use in English, is it? I just went for two weeks in the Outer Banks. It was, we used the word vacation. I wouldn't say I sojourned there. The word speaks of somebody who is born in one country, goes to another to live out of a sense of need, out of a famine or a desperation. They go to another nation to live. In English, we'd call that a refugee or a resident alien. If you want one verse in this, I know there's a lot about it, but if you want one verse, Jeremiah 22, verse three, just dot that down. I'll read it for you. Jeremiah 22, three, thus says Yahweh, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in his place. And this is not a small group of people we're talking about. Second Chronicles 2 verse 17 says at the end of Solomon's reign, there were over 150,000 resident aliens in Israel. 150,000. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 
says God, Yahweh, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien or the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the alien, therefore, for you once were aliens in the land of Egypt. So here it's connected to our own spiritual condition. Israel was in spiritual captivity in Egypt and God rescued them. So when they're in their own promised land, they should rescue the strangers and aliens or sojourners they have there. It's just a basic way of reminding you here at church, New Testament church, a basic way of reminding you that this world is not your home. Your passport is not stamped USA. Your passport is stamped kingdom of heaven. You're just an alien here. You have a higher citizenship namely in heaven. Now, obvious question to ask. Why isn't the word alien or resident alien used then in verse 27? If they're always paired in the Old Testament, widows and orphans and aliens, why don't you see it here in the New Testament? And here's where you need a little bit of dispensationalism to help you. There's a distinction in the Old Testament between God working through Israel and the way God works in the New Testament through the church. In the Old Testament, God was working through a nation to establish his kingdom on earth. And so if somebody wanted the protection afforded by God's law, they had to immigrate to Israel. That was the nation. So if you were drawn towards Yahweh, you moved to Israel. In the New Testament, God is not working through a nation. In the New Testament, God is working through the church to establish his kingdom and advance his kingdom in the world. And his church transcends nations. His church is in every nation. And they should have a lot of similarities with each other, by the way. The church from one nation to another should look a lot more alike. They should have a lot more of Christ in the culture. Amen? And because of that basic fact, we're all aliens in the church. <laughs> Think about who James has written to. Written to the Jews in the diaspora spread abroad. All of them were, were Jews. They were ethnically Hebrews from Israel that had been cast around the Roman Empire. I mean, they were all immigrants in that sense. And now they're brought together by faith in Christ. And so with that background, it wouldn't make much sense for James to include fatherless, you know, widows, orphans, and the aliens here because they're all aliens. Nevertheless, the point remains that group is paired. And in the reader's mind, it would be obvious them, the fatherless, the, the, the widows, and the aliens. Now, I'm not naive. I know that our country is kept safe by secure borders and that we have freedom. If you don't have secure borders, you don't have freedom. If you can't control your borders, you can't have any sense of justice, which means you can't have freedom, the freedoms that we appreciate and which freedom of worship and religion for just some examples that come immediately to mind. So how do you balance the biblical command to have a heart for the immigrant and compassion for the immigrant with a desire to have justice in some sense of a nation? And you really do need a distinction in your mind. This is not Christian duplicit talk here. It's a foundational ethical principle. You need a distinction in your mind between individual ethics and corporate ethics. Between how you as a Christian act as a person and how the government should act. So they're not the same set of ethics. Here's the most obvious example of that. If somebody punches you in the face for being a Christian, what are you supposed to do? Hit this one too. You're supposed to turn the other cheek and I hope you're brave enough and have enough courage to actually do that. That's the biblical ethic. Somebody steals something from you because you're a Christian, hey, give them the other thing also and count yourself 
joyful for being counted worthy to suffer with Christ. That's the individual ethic. Unless you're a law enforcement officer in uniform and on duty. Then someone punches you in the face, you take the guy down and you throw him in the clink and that keeps all of us safe, right? That same officer that just took the guy down and threw him in the clink, he goes home and he takes off his uniform and he's out duty, off duty and he gets punched in the face for being a Christian, he too gives the other cheek. Because there is a difference between individual ethics and corporate ethics. I think most of us understand that. This probably is not the first time you're hearing this. But you need to apply this to this kind of passage that commands you to have a heart of compassion for the immigrant. There has to be a distinction between individual ethics and corporate ethics. What is best for our nation is not the same thing that an individual would do in a similar circumstance. At the same time, God has raised up Christians in positions of influence where they can bring Christian ethic and Christian influence into national policy. And in those instances, it falls for Christians to do as much as they can to live out Christian ethics in a way that doesn't harm the nation. To be the one showing love and compassion. You don't want to try to pit the idea of having a secure and sovereign nation against the idea of loving orphans, except to say that they are two principles that are in tension. The immigrants that come that are in need, that are fleeing famine or persecution, women with, with children, your heart should go out to them. You should have compassion on them. You should want what is best for them. At the same time, the principle is that God has developed a world with nations that need borders and need enforcement. The Bible doesn't tell you what our country's immigration policy should be. Otherwise, this would be very easy, like Proverbs 32 says right here. But the Bible has given us the Swiss army knife of ethics, that in any given situation, you have this army knife you can take out of your pocket, and that knife, in this instance, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what you do in a difficult situation. You don't know how you're supposed to respond. You respond to love towards your neighbor as you would want to be loved in their place. Talked to a pastor in Texas this week who said this line. He has many immigration officials in his church and he challenges them with this basic question. And that person comes in asking for help or asylum and they're put across the table from a Christian looking at them. Wouldn't it be nice if their experience of Christianity was the look of love for neighbor from that person? Again, it's complicated issues. There's no easy fix for how you show love to those in need while keeping ourselves safe, because not every immigrant, of course, is in need. Many are coming to, to rob and to steal and to cause harm, and praise God for government. Our country reviles uh, border agents, and it reviles customs officials, and ICE, and people in the Homeland Security Department, and you know, our country and our culture right now slurs, slurs them, and you know, I pray for their safety. I thank God that there are people that are willing to risk our lives to keep our country safe. At the same time, you want those people to live out Christian ethics as much as possible, especially those that are in the positions of power and making decisions. By placing this command here, James is setting you up to rebuke you next week for those that elevate how they treat somebody with money over those, how they treat somebody who is poor. Why is caring for widows and orphans and immigrants so important? Because it's pure. 
You're not going to get anything back from them in exchange. They don't have anything to give you. They have no currency to give you. It's also very godlike. Psalm 146 verse 9 says this, Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. We sustain, we care for, we love widows. We sustain, we care for, and orphans and sojourners because God does. And that reflects his heart. Third, first, guard your tongue. Second, love the poor and the needy. Third, guard your holiness. It's as if James here is giving his readers a choice between loving what the world loves or loving those whom God loves. And the opposite, by the way, of showing love to the widows and orphans is not hating them. The opposite of loving them is loving the world. It's loving the world. James says here that in opposition to caring for widows and orphans is to keep yourself unstained by the world, to guard the way that you live. Notice the different demeanors here. You, first of all, are reigning in your tongue. You're holding your back. Secondly, you're giving out your love. And thirdly, you're protecting yourself from the world. James is saying that you have a choice of how you're gonna live. Are you gonna love whom the world loves and love what the world loves or are you gonna love whom God loves? And the world will taint you. The world will defile you. The world will stain you. You step in the wrong place and you love the wrong thing in the world and it brings you down. My uh, kids sometimes play the game hot lava. They pretend the sidewalk is hot lava. Sometimes you're only supposed to step in the squares and not the cracks. Sometimes the cracks and not the squares because the other thing is hot lava. So you're always watching where you step. It makes walking to the mall fun. (laughs) That's how you should live in the world. You're careful what you love. You're careful where you step. Because if you love the wrong thing, if you love what the world loves, if you watch the same kind of entertainment as the world and the same music as the world and you just love the things the world loves, I mean, you will end up being like the world. It's very popular for people to say, oh, James 127, that's the verse that defines Christianity. Love the immigrant. And they just put the period in the wrong spot. Somewhat ironic. Keep going. Keep yourself unstained by the world. James takes the idea of pure and undefiled and he uses it towards widows and now he uses it here towards the things in the world that you love. If you love evil things in the world, you are defiling yourself. And if you defile yourself, your religion, James says, is worthless. It's worthless. Appreciate that the idea of pure and undefiled has been removed from ritual washings in Israelite religion and now finds itself safe and secure through love in Christ. He doesn't tell you what it means to keep yourself unstained by the world. He trusts that you'll recognize it. He trusts that you'll have the ability to tell if you are walking in light or in the darkness, if you're loving the things the world loves or the things the darkness loves. He announces boldly that the kind of religion that is pure and undefiled will have at the center of it compassion for the needy, restrained speech, and a love for holiness. One more thing uh, about immigration. I forgot to say this earlier. Again, uh, the Bible doesn't tell you what your immigration policy should be, but let me challenge you with this. If you have so hardened your heart to your perception of the world that you see everything through the lens of politics, and you've gotten your heart to the point where you are unable to have compassion on somebody who needs it. That's what James means when he says that religion is worthless. If you have so conditioned yourself 
to not have compassion on the very people God has compassion on and excuse it for some kind of political form, political justification. I mean, what even good is that religion? It doesn't pass the basic sniff test from the Father. On the other hand, if you look at your life and you see a tongue that is restrained, a love that goes out, and a desire to protect yourself from the evils of the world, that right there is a religion that is put on the scales. And God says that is pure. That is undefiled. Now don't confuse root from fruit here. James is not saying if you do these things, you will be pleasing before God. He's not saying do these things and God will accept you. He's saying that if you have Christ in your heart, you should see these things in your life. It's the faith that comes first, the practice that comes second. Lord, I pray for the people in this church. I pray that our hearts would be sincere before you. (laughs) No fake religion here, Lord. I pray for anybody who's here that's in a position of authority in our country and has the capacity to show love to those who need it. I pray that they would use their influence to do that in a wise way that protects us. Lord, we're so thankful that we have brave men and women that would really risk their lives to defend us and to keep our country secure. It grieves us that people revile them and harm them and wish them ill. Lord, we're grateful for the freedom they provide and for the, their own self-sacrifice in, in keeping us safe. We do pray for the safety of our immigration officials and ICE agents. We pray that you would, would keep them safe and you would give them opportunities to do what John the Baptist told the Roman soldiers to be happy with their wages and to carry out and force justice. Lord, we pray for wisdom in our country. Pray for our country's leadership, our president, and the others who are making decisions that govern us. We pray that they, as much as they're able, as much light as they have, would see the truth about Christ and would act in response to it. We're thankful for the freedom we have here. We do pray in light of July 4th and around the corner giving you thanks for our freedom. More special to us than that, though, Lord, is the freedom that we have being in you, united to you in Christ. I pray that the hearts of this congregation would not be duplicit, but would have a religion that is pure and is undefiled because it is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, Lord. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.